Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. Today we conclude Dr. Neufeld's three-week series, This is Our God, with a final message called, Why the Trinity Matters. So let's listen now as we discover the importance of this essential doctrine. In the last three weeks, we've been talking about God. If A.W. Tozer was right that what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, then I can't even begin to overestimate the value of talking about God, of studying God, worshiping God, finding our joy in the God who exists. Well, during this week, we've been talking about the Trinity, and I still repeatedly find that there are those people who, when talking about the Trinity, answer in a number of inappropriate ways. I constantly run into people whose response is, so what? I mean, does it really matter? Now, of course, you know what I'm going to say. I'm going to say that it does. Indeed, today, I want to give six reasons why the doctrine of the Trinity matters. First, it matters because a good view of the Trinity is a safeguard against all false teaching. Second, it matters because it will remind us what the death of Jesus is really all about. Third, it matters because it will transform our prayer lives and the way in which we worship God. Fourth, it matters because it will transform how we look at creation. Fifth, it matters because it will transform all of our relationships. And sixth, it matters in the way in which we live our Christian lives. But before I get to these six points of application, let me take you back into the 2,000-year history of the Christian faith. You might not know this, but the struggle over the triune nature of God was a struggle so bitter and so divisive that it threatened to tear the church apart. In our day, we might think, why risk such a bitter struggle? Why not allow for a healthy diversity of thought on this matter? But the early church disagreed. They thought this matter about the true nature of God was so significant that unless this matter were understood and accepted, there would be no true Christian faith. They thought the very truth of the gospel was at stake. Look at it this way. As the New Testament closes, you hear two prevalent themes. One is suffering and persecution, and the other is warning against false teaching. And so, for instance, Jude, writing in the 60s or 70s AD, warns of certain people who crept in unnoticed, who pervert the grace of God. And then John, writing in the 80s or early 90s, warns, let no one deceive you and encourage the church to remain in the truth, and finally, to test the spirits to see whether they are truly from God. See, the fight over what would constitute what Jude called the truth once for all delivered to the saints would occupy the church for the first 500 years of its existence as one heresy after another threatened her existence. And at the heart of this battle was the battle of the nature of God himself and over the nature of Jesus. Four of the greatest historic confessions of the faith ever constructed, either directly or indirectly, address the issue of the Trinity. I'm speaking about the Apostles' Creed, probably completed in about the 3rd of the 4th century, the Nicene Creed of 325, the Chalcedonian Creed of 451, and the Athanasian Creed of the late 4th century. If you don't know your history, these four confessions of faith were formed out of a great struggle for the truth. Indeed, so important did the church once regard this matter of the Trinity that the Athanasian Creed stated, This is the universal Christian faith, which except a man believe faithfully, he cannot be saved. And they thought that unless the doctrine of the Trinity were defended and taught, eventually what would be lost was the very gospel itself. Were they right? 
Was all this struggle worth the fight, or did it just divide people? You know, during this week, I've attempted to explain and give biblical evidence for the doctrine of the Trinity, but today, I want to visit six reasons why the doctrine of the Trinity matters. First, the doctrine of the Trinity matters because it is a safeguard against heresy in general. Indeed, I wonder if you've noticed that those pseudo-Christian groups that deny the Trinity also deny the central tenets of the gospel, so I have a bit of homework for everyone who's listening to me. Go to your church and get out the statement of faith. If there is no statement on the Trinity, or if there is a statement opposing the Trinity, walk away from that church or that denomination because that's poison for you. And you may not know it now, but what's being taught is slowly eroding away true biblical faith. It will destroy you and it will destroy your family and your children as well. See, why is that? There's something about the doctrine of the Trinity that keeps us from heresy in general. See, throughout this study, I have emphasized that within the economy of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have loved one another from all eternity, so much so that nothing needed to be added to their love. God did not create the world because he was longing for someone to love. Instead, the three persons of the Godhead loved one another fully and were satisfied in that love. See, why is that important? We know that God did not create us to satisfy an unmet need in himself. And since that is true, we then know that we are not supplying an unmet need in God, and therefore the doctrine of justification by works is to be discounted. God created us not to do something for him. He created us to experience the joy of knowing him fully. He invited us into his eternal love. We were created not out of a lack in God. We were created as an expression of his fullness. That's why we don't work for our salvation. It's offered as a free gift of grace. Jettison the doctrine of the Trinity and given enough time, we will always be backed to the false gospel of justification by works of the law. Whether it be earning a higher Melchizedek priesthood in the temple, as some do, or earning some virtue in order to get to the new earth, leaving only a few virtuous ones to get to heaven, as others think. A healthy doctrine of the Trinity takes away all reason to boast in our works and calls us to find delight and joy in the works of God. I hope you've noticed something throughout our study. We've not explained how God can be one and yet eternally exist as three persons, but we do notice that holding this to be true helps us not to fall into the errors that seek to deprive us from the truth of the gospel. And so first, the doctrine of the Trinity safeguards us against heresy in general. And second, the doctrine of the Trinity matters because it allows us to see what the cross of Jesus is really all about. I want us to see how vital this doctrine is to the heart of our faith. If Jesus is a created being and not God from eternity past, if he's a creature, how then could he also be our sin substitute? How could he bear the sins of the entire world, and how could his sacrifice have been a suitable payment for the sins of the whole world? Could any created being, no matter how worthy, really save us? The real question comes down to this. What kind of a sacrifice would be sufficient to repair our assault against the holiness of God? What is adequate to cover over crimes against God?
Who can be worthy to satisfy the righteous demands of God? Can any creature satisfy divine offended majesty? See, the writer of Hebrews in 726 writes of Jesus, For it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. The statement above the heavens means above the created order. And then in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, Now the point of what we are saying is this, We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Now, if you want a picture of what it is for anyone to be seated at the right hand of the Father, all you need to do is go back to Hebrews 1 verse 3, where we are told that he, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God the Father and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. See, and here's the point. The only one who sits at the right hand of infinite majesty is the one who is the exact imprint of the nature of eternal deity. Only God himself can render atonement for the offended honor of God himself. No creature can repair offended majesty. That's why whenever the doctrine of the Trinity is lacking, one of two heresies emerges. The first is the assumption that our sin is really not that bad after all. If we have other gods, or if we make idols, or if we misuse the glorious name of God in a foul manner, or if we kill, steal, commit adultery, and refuse to worship, it's not a matter of an infinite crime. It's a smaller matter that can be fixed by a lesser creature than God himself. And the second assumption is that God is not altogether holy after all. Lose the doctrine of the Trinity and you will lose the necessity of a bloodstained sacrifice of the only true God. Lose the doctrine of the Trinity and what Jesus did on the cross is lost from our understanding. Have you ever wondered why the Trinity really matters? Well, Dr. Neufeld has begun to help us realize just how significant this doctrine is for us as individuals and for the church as a whole. The issue of the Trinity has been debated for hundreds of years and is one of the foundational truths of Christianity. Stay with us after the break as we continue to learn why we must take it seriously today. Thanks for listening. Will you become one today? Well, all across the country, every day, thousands of people are hearing the truth of God's Word being taught on the air. And that's only possible because of listeners and friends like you. If you haven't joined our Partner to Tell campaign, this is a great opportunity to consider becoming a monthly partner. Help us continue spreading the truth of God's Word in the lives of believers and unbelievers. We need your help in 2016 to reach our goal of an additional 120 monthly partners. To find out how you can join with us in ministry to ensure the good news is being told, visit us today at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. We've been talking about why the doctrine of the Trinity matters. We've said it matters because it protects against heresy in general, and it matters in that it safeguards the truth of what actually happened on the cross. Third, 
The doctrine of the Trinity matters because it will transform both our prayer lives and our worship of God. You see, if Jesus is not God, then we must not pray to him or worship him. Only God deserves our adoration, and to adore and worship a created being is idolatry. And yet the New Testament teaches us to worship Jesus. Listen to the words of Revelation 5, 12 to 14. Worthy is the Lamb, that's the Son, who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne, that's the Father, and to the Lamb, that's the Son, to both of them be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. See, you are commanded to worship Jesus. You are commanded from John 5.23 to honor the Son even as you honor the Father. To fail to worship Jesus as Lord and God is an affront to God. We are to attribute to Jesus all honor and glory and might and blessing forever. Worship Him, for He is your God. Now, a fourth reason why the doctrine of the Trinity is so important is it not only transforms how we look at God and our salvation, it also transforms how we look at the creation. As there is both a unity and a diversity in God, so also we find in the things that God has made the very similar pattern. The fifth reason why the doctrine of the Trinity is important is because it directs our understanding of relationships. God himself is a God of relationship and has been so for all of eternity. We have found that the kind of relationship we find in the Trinity is one of both equality of being, and yet the three persons play a unique and complementary role. We might say that as the Father exercises leadership and the Son submits to the leadership of the Father, this in itself helps us understand the unique nature of relationships both in marriage and in the church. Ephesians 5 teaches husbands to love their wives and for wives to submit to their own husbands. You know, often this kind of teaching meets with resistance. There are those who would argue that submission is based upon the view that women are inferior to men and that women cannot pursue a work outside the home or, or that they shouldn't be paid a wage that reflects equality or that women can be made the subject to abuse. But a faithful analysis of the relationship within the Trinity gives us a very different picture. Not only does the Father love the Son, but the Father also regards the Son as fully equal to Himself. The Trinity teaches us that full equality and complementary roles, even submission, are possible. See, I'm aware of the horrible problem of abuse that haunts so many marriages. A husband will say, you know, I'm the head of this home and therefore you have to do what I tell you to do. You know, I recently heard of a Christian pastor who told his wife that unless she did what he demanded of her, his ministry would suffer and she'd be held accountable to God. And all this was a form of emotional abuse and reflected his egomaniacal attributes. You know, it is true that abuse rises within marriage, but the reason for abuse is our inherent sinfulness and our unwillingness to accept the other as our full equal. Just as the Father and the Son are fully God, so also husband and wife are fully human. And the importance of personhood is equally felt in both. That's why the husband is charged with caring for and protecting his wife and to care for her needs. 
And this is so vital. As the father has authority over the son, so also the husband has authority over his wife. But the father honors the son and finds him the object of his delight, so also a husband is to honor his wife and find delight in her. And just as the father, as the son was being baptized, said, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. See, I know that the unique nature of the relationship of a man and a woman within a marriage is far greater than we can deal with here in this broadcast. But in a very real way, this relationship is expanded when discussed within the church. Romans 12.3 tells us in the church not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. We are to remember that we're one body and that we have many members. Each member has been assigned different gifts and with them different roles within the body. Hebrews 13 tells us to submit to our leaders. 1 Corinthians 12 demands that we understand that the roles we play are all directed by the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given us. No member can say to the other, I have no need of you. Hence, we have a fundamental equality among the people of God and yet a complementary description of the roles that they play. Imagine how this gets worked out in the world around us. You know, a Christian business owner who employs a number of people knows that he has been called to give leadership over the people that he employs. And yet from the Trinity, he learns that there can be a difference in function, but a fundamental equality of personhood. And so he thinks of and treats his workers as fully equal to himself. He begins to recognize that leadership and love are not contradictory words. Indeed, the kind of relationship that exists within the Godhead form the basis of all healthy, life-giving, and life-affirming relationships, including the relationships of parents to children, the relationships of political leaders to their constituency, the relationship of a teacher to his or her students, on and on it goes. See, the Trinity matters because we have come to see that God brings himself as a relational being into all human relationships. And I've said that there are a number of reasons that the Trinity matters. First, it forms a general defense against all false teaching. Second, it teaches us about the true meaning of the cross. Third, it transforms our prayer lives. Fourth, it changes our view of the creation. Five, it helps us to order human relationships. And sixth, the doctrine of the Trinity matters in every area of our lives. See, one of the great issues found in the New Testament deals with the relationship between Jew and Gentiles. Do Jews have a unique role in the outworking of our redemption? Yes. Are Jews and Gentiles fully equal before God? Yes. So much more could be said. But as I think about how to end this section on the Trinity, I'm reminded of a line in the Trinity in Hervin Bavinick's excellent volume on the doctrine of God. He says, In the confession of the Trinity throbs the heart of the Christian religion. Every error results from, or upon deeper reflection, may be traced to a wrong view of this doctrine. But of course, this should not surprise us at all. When we began this study, we noticed that A.W. Tozer thought that what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, and what comes to our minds when we think about God will determine our eternal spiritual future. See, God in his mercy has therefore done the most gracious thing that he could have done for us. He has disclosed himself to us. He told us of himself. And then he gave to us his son, 
and then sent his Holy Spirit to dwell within us. That means that the best thing that can happen to us is to receive a true knowledge of God. And so to dwell within the true God and to think of him, worship him, and love him, so much so that thoughts of God permeate everything we do. Whether we eat or drink, go to work, make love to our spouse, raise our children, or watch the evening news, everything we do is transformed because we are the people who have come to know our God. Do you know God? Let me suggest to you that you simply pray, Oh God, I don't know you, but I know that you sent your Son to be my Savior, and I repent of my sins and offer you my life. Would you offer me yourself so that I might know you? In Jesus' name, amen. John, this has been an incredible series, and I think we've learned so much about so much. But I think that's important, isn't it? Uh, You know, we've talked in the past about the fact that maybe God is overshadowed by all the other things that are going on in the church. Is it important for us to get back to the doctrine of who God is? It, It does appear to me that the church has talked about so many things, and I think what's absent in our conversation is our fascination with the person of God, our longing for him, our desire to discuss fully the doctrine of God, get to know him more. I mean, we should become God-centered so that the glory of God becomes the, the fascination of the church. And I'm not saying that the other stuff doesn't matter. I'm just simply saying that it all takes a secondary focus. We are about God. And so let's continue to make the church about God. What a great and fitting way to end this series on the nature of our God. We've been reminded and refreshed on how important it is for every believer to properly understand the Trinity in the light of Scripture. This knowledge not only protects us from false teaching, but it has real and practical applications to how we worship, foster relationships, and so much more. I hope that throughout our study you've been encouraged and perhaps inspired to know your God even more as He reveals Himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Today wraps up our series, This Is Our God. But be sure to join us next week for our special Q&A series with Dr. John Newfeld, answering your questions sent to Dr. Newfeld from listeners right across the country. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Well, our latest resource, Truth and Life magazine, is now here. We've now combined our two previous publications, Bible Matters and Life Matters, into one larger format. It features a wide variety of articles ranging from rich Bible teaching to practical down-to-earth glimpses of how to apply our walk to the challenges and opportunities of daily life. Sent to your door every other month, each edition features the biblical insight of Dr. John Newfeld, insightful glimpses of life and our hope found in Jesus with host of Laugh Again, Phil Calloway, and much, much more. Plus, get a behind-the-scene perspective of each of our ministries as how God is challenging us for even greater things. We hope the new magazine offers all of our readers encouragement, wisdom, and understanding for walking closer to Jesus every day. In case you haven't yet subscribed for your own Truth and Life magazine, then do so today by calling us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.